You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. I'm John Tito, White Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. Hopefully, everybody's doing well. I actually was cutting timber today with my son, and I was setting up bedding areas on a hillside. I'm I'm out of shape, and uh, <laughs> it kind of proved it today. I got a little tired. Uh, I was etching them in with a shovel today and uh, doing some uphill kind of cutting and, and just a uh, pretty steep hillside on my own property. And also cool, my son and I, we... Uh, we found our first shed. In fact, he stumbled uh, on it in one of the bedding areas. So kudos to him. You know, he's 12 years old and I'm just happy that he's starting to get the bug. So that's that's kind of fun for me. Uh, the other thing I want to mention, and I mentioned this in the last podcast, is we're going to start doing giveaways. So this is, I'll just say the first week of giveaways. So Whitetail Company is a lifestyle company that I actually purchased my hats from. I'm going to purchase some other clothing and you know, my clients get some clothing options when they hire me, et cetera. But, you know, this company is really kind of growing and they, they provide a lot of value and opportunity. And I really like the quality of their products. So for the first this week, and I want you to contact me, you can send me an email at john at whitetaillandscapes.com and uh, I'll put your name in a hat and you will get a hat. And uh, I've got a few hats to give away and a few other things, but this week it's a hat. Next week, it might be something else. So please email me, and this episode will be episode 111. So reference the episode, and I will put your name in a hat, and I will mail you out a hat. So that's kind of cool. And I said previously, if anybody wants to donate and provide product, that's great. Um, I want to promote those that want to donate and give. You know, giving is great, and that's, uh, that's kind of where I'm going to go there. All right, I got a brand new guest on today and I'm excited to have him. We've chatted a bit. So he's from the great state of Pennsylvania and I work in Pennsylvania. So I like that state a lot. I'm not sure if I like it more in New York, but sometimes I do. We'll see. So we'll talk to Greg and we'll get Greg to introduce himself. So just give me a second. Hey, Greg, are you on the line? Yeah, I'm here. All right. I want you to introduce yourself to the audience and tell a little bit about you and your business and uh, we'll start to get into some of the details of how you operate. Sure. So, uh, my name is Greg Burnson. I live in Wellsboro, which is uh, north central Tioga County. Um, just a real, real brief background. I hopped around a little bit. I, I grew up in Connecticut, did my four years of forestry study at the University of New Hampshire. And to be truthful, the 18 year old Greg was not, did not have Pennsylvania on the radar. Um, but met the met the woman that's my wife at at UNH and she decided she was going to do her masters in Pennsylvania so we did the distance thing for a year and 
she decided she was staying here for career opportunities. And I guess they say the rest is history. So, um, yeah, we were coming up on being married for 15 years. So I guess it, guess it was a good move. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Congratulations to you. So you operate, you know, you, you're kind of a little different where you do some forestry management and logging kind of all in one, right? You're not just a logger, you're both. And I think that makes you a little bit unique. And in that, I think, you know, we're kind of, I think we, I want to explore kind of you know, what, what type of projects you take on just, you know, what are the size and status of the projects you take on and what are you working on right now? So, yeah. Um, the, the timber side of things has been sort of an evolution too. Um, I, I actually cut timber through, through college and enjoyed it. Um, again, you know, looking, looking back and sort of the best laid plans and and what the younger me thought I was going to do and where I ended up are totally, totally different. Um, I, I really do enjoy silviculture and actually putting a plan in place, but also, you know, trying to see it through. And, you know, as we get into this discussion, I think we'll, I, you know, I'll lay out some of the details of how, how I've evolved. So I started, very first skitter. I still own it somewhat for sentimental value was a Timberjack 240. I mean, they're one of the most common machines you see in the Northeast and chainsaws, you know, and I drag cable and over time that has evolved into a, uh, cut to length operation. So I'm now running a, uh, forwarder and a processor, neither of which are brand new. I brand new stuff is super expensive. Um, and I like being able to go to Napa and get a lot of the parts I need. So there is something to be, be said for that as, as new equipment evolves, um, you know, and now you, you need to be more of a computer science scientist than a mechanic to run some of the stuff. But, um, yeah. And that, that evolution has sort of taken place because I've realized that in many ways, this region has a low grade wood problem and not a lot of guys that are willing to tackle it for a number of reasons, but um, it got to a point where I like doing wildlife focused work. And again, you know, the silviculture that makes sense for, for habitat, um, but also for healthy forests and that, that sort of progression sort of, sort of made sense. It's been, it's been a slow progression. Um, I work, 100% 100% by myself. So if you call me and, you know, the, I do the initial site visit, if there's some sort of planning, I'm that guy. And then I'm the guy that's running the machines and possibly laying in the mud, fixing something broken too. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. You sound like me. Uh, this is good, right? So, so you're, you're a do it all and you take on, you know, a whole host of different projects. And you brought up a topic that I think is really important for folks that are, getting into maybe considering healthy forests or sustainable management or ecological restoration. They're thinking about their landscape and they're saying, okay, I've got some goals and objectives. I'm starting to find those in researching or listening to this podcast, what have you, but I've got this problem. This problem is my timber doesn't have, you know, good quality and and quality could be in the eyes of the beholder too. Um, But let's say it's, it's economically diminished, meaning its value is limited because the resources were mismanaged. And I think we'll define that as there's low grade or low quality timber remaining. And I, I think in this discussion, I want you to explain to me really like what species would be considered low grade? Is it, is it based on economics? What, what would be the, the basic foundation of thinking at least? What, what, what classifies as low grade to you? So... It, it's a host of things, but I, I, I think you hit it pretty good. Uh, you know, the, the initial thought would be um, just valuation and along that lines of valuation is also future potential. Um, if we walk out in the woods and the classic example, and I post some pictures of these ugly trees on, on some of my social media, like, we've all probably seen them that multi-stem four or five trunk soft maple that were stump sprouts 60 years ago. And the biggest one is 10 or 11 inches. The smaller ones are maybe seven or eight and they grow up 
and they sort of have this palm tree kind of look to them and none of them are straight and they take up a whole lot of canopy space. You can grow those into perpetuity and you're never going to undo that form. They're always going to have that sort of included bark in that stump and be weakened trees. Um, Sometimes they're what appears to be the dominant trees on the site. I, I know you've had some of these discussions with, with Tim and Kenny in the past, you know, thinking back, I, I did listen to those episodes, so we're not too redundant, but using Kenny's example, like the black birch, this is not to say that you don't see black birch that gets some size to it and maybe makes a, a decent butt log, maybe even a good second log. But if that's your seed source and then you're seeing, okay, well, we've got these, not real big. They weren't the dominant trees once upon a time, but now they're sort of, you know, they were maybe mid story before now they're kind of overstory, but they're also seeding in and creating a regeneration issue and they seed super prolifically. They're competing with anything else we might want to grow. So there's also that. Um, and then there's, there's the species that they might be, um, they, they might be a more valuable um, species overall, you know, to say white oak, for example, it's the hottest species in the market right now. But that's not to say that that crooked, spindly, 8, 10-inch chestnut oak or white oak that's all pin knots and has snaked up into the canopy and is suppressed by something else is somehow ever going to respond. It's not something that gives us an excuse to cut the bigger trees and say this 60 year old tree that's suppressed we can't even count growth rings when we cut it down that somehow that's miraculously going to be the next high grade saw log at the next harvest so oftentimes it's that uh, depending on the site but you know using an oak site for an example it's those shade tolerant sort of mid-story species that we really don't want to see become more prolific on the landscape especially if we're trying to to set the stage to regenerate oak or create an opening and and diversify it into true young forest habitat. So let's, let's add some other species into, you know, your cutting mix. So you've listed a couple there from a low grade standpoint, economic and forget the form, just, just what the market will bear. What are the type of species that might fit into that category that, you know, don't really hit the mark when it comes to making real money, you know, on our landscapes? Again, and this is this is going to be super regional, uh, and I say that you know if you go into the Adirondacks and you're growing halfway decent black birch, it has significantly more value than it does here. Here, it's a species that's not really sought after. There's mills that deal with it, but it's sort of a nuisance species. Nobody really pays very well for it. It has a tendency to get these nasty cat faces on it. Um, black gum is another one that. If there's only a few of them on a site, we might leave them for species diversity, but oftentimes even when you do get them big enough, they're going to be, it's not to say you can't make a railroad tie log or a, what we call a, a mat log that gets sawed into timbers, but it's really only an industrial species. Beach would be another one. And again, you know, none of this is like set in stone. Obviously, we, I live in an area where beach bark disease is rampant. If I come upon a 16, 17-inch beach that's super smooth, looks like there's nothing wrong with it, by all means, we're going to leave that tree. But if I'm in a site where all of those trees are reaching 12 to 14 inches and they're all scaly and we're starting to see those clonal sprouts coming off that root system and it's starting to dominate the understory, there's another one. Um, Aspen has awesome wildlife benefit to, to cut it, but being as it's a softer wood, you don't normally see it in lumber products here. Go out into the Great Lakes. They do have a at least pallet and crating markets, and they use it, but here, by and large, it's it's either a pallet log if it's sound or it's going to a, a chipping facility or the other market we have here in Pennsylvania. They're shaving it into animal bedding for poultry houses. Um uh, softwood, some of the softwood species. Uh, again, white pine is beautiful if you can grow nice ones, but we've all probably seen those ones that were weeveled and they look like an overgrown gigantic cactus in the woods. So, yeah, I mean, anything, it, I guess in a lot of ways, any anything has potential to be good if the form and, and the quality is there, but there's also the the potential to be, to be pretty ugly. I, I've seen 
stands of sugar maple where one 14 inch tree is beautiful and has a ton of potential. And the next one has been hit with sugar maple bore two or three times. And you can see those big scars starting at six feet. So there isn't even really a quality butt log in it. So it's oftentimes as much a quality thing as it is a species thing. Yeah. I think that's a good encapsulation and a couple key points there just to hit off. And I think you, you kind of dial it in and correct. Look at your local market, right? Tie in with the people that understand that market and understand the value. And in that, we need to understand what the goals and objectives are. And you brought up one thing, just that example of beach. And beach is near and dear to my heart, although we were cutting beach today. You know, I, I feel like people overlook the value of certain trees in certain situations. And so biodiversity is key. One of the things you can do in your landscape, and what I typically tell my clients is take a Take a rangefinder and, and mark 70 yards by 70 yards, right? That's basically a, a square acre approximately. And count, do a kick and count. And kick and count means to me is mark down the, the size of the timber on average, the diversity of that timber in that landscape, and see how, how much species variety you have. This whole concept of biodiversity is really important. Certain species are going to be better at sequestering carbon, whether it's in the ground or in the stem of the tree itself. Right, certain species are going to be better better for habitat, wildlife value. And so you're starting to assess the quality amongst that, like Greg said. And I think that's important in the discussion and equation to realize like we're not just going to go into the forest and, and cut you know, all the hard maple out because there's value in it, or we're going to get rid of all the beach because there's no economic value in it. Now that we're kind of going down this road of grades and quality and biodiversity, if we're thinking big picture, and a lot of things changed in the early 1900s in the U.S., and a lot of these forest stands that I get in, into, you know, they've been untouched 80, 90, 100, roughly, maybe maybe longer, maybe 120 years. You know, they basically turn into these, I'm going to say, unmanaged, non-diverse, basically because they have not been cut and managed, fire isn't on our landscape, and I'm mostly dealing with northern hardwood settings, you know, we, we use a term called mesification, hard word to say, but basically we created these environments where there's a lot of cool, damp, shaded conditions, and there's a lot of fuel load below those trees, okay? And in these mesophytic species, basically, you get a lot of shade intolerance type species. One of those that we just spoke about was beech. The other one is, is hard maple, and these are the environments I'm typically dealing with. So, you know, you're basically get, getting ready to fire and the opportunity to grow variety is minimized. And so we're not seeing a lot of young forests on the landscape or people doing, you know, small patchwork clear cuts. You're starting to see structural changes in composition. And in some areas that weren't managed, you brought up the other, the, the multi-stem trunks. Somebody's not going in there doing maintenance and removing those those trees specifically, and I'm not saying you don't have cavity trees that are in that kind of form, et cetera, but you're starting to see a, a change in the landscape. So I kind of want to see if you could kind of explain going down the road of, okay, we've got low-grade timber, and we're looking at the forest stand as it is, you know, as it stands today. We've gotten to this place, and we're trying to say, okay, we want to get some economic value out of it, but it's all low-grade. So, you know, what, what can we do and, and potentially in that equation, in that 100-year, 120-year cycle, we've got some decent timber in pockets. And so we don't want to, like, remove all the decent timber because then we don't have any seed sources. But maybe that decent timber is in such a small quantity that it's maybe being utilized to offset some of the costs of removing the low-grade timber. And so I think this equation happens a lot with clients because they have this landscape that is maybe you know segregated out in some shape or form and it, it it doesn't have a uniform kind of structure to it meaning there's poor grade because of you know site index quality and then there's high grade or good good quality because again it might be it might be a quality soil thing it might be an area that was left or an area that was managed for that matter so i guess i want you to get into some of the particulars of things that you've noticed and how do you manage low grade in those situations in concert with high grade from a landowner standpoint? So I, I guess speaking from experience, and I'm not saying this to, to divert the question, 
most often I am, it is very rare that I am working in a woodlot anymore that has not had some sort of an entry in the past. Um, there is a history in North central Pennsylvania. We had some big paper mills. They've fallen by the wayside. Um, but we have had, we've gone through a, a number of cycles, whether it was heavy cutting that fed some of those mills, uh, sites that once upon a time had more cherry in them and it was harvested during the boom of the cherry days, um, areas that were picked over and, you know, subjected to the first diameter cut. And so oftentimes my, my assessment again, you know, getting back into the timber quality is I'm looking at if I've got a landowner that's proactive and wants to start steering their forest in a healthier direction. And then I'm asking them, you know, what is, what is your tolerance for making major changes? And this gets into the whole human dynamic, which is a completely different topic, but you see it as a land manager. Um, we can do really cool stuff. Sometimes going out, if you know what to look for and you're looking at the, your indicators on the landscape, we can see the challenges. We can come up with ideas. We've got past experience of what works, but that doesn't always mean we can sell it to another individual. <laughs> um, yeah. If that is the case and someone is willing to, willing to do really cool work, I'm, I'm always encouraging landowners to scale up. And part of that is just because that's what it actually takes to do a commercial level harvest. If there isn't enough volume, things as simple as, you know, the cost of getting my equipment to a job to just move two machines, I could easily have over a thousand dollars just in low bed fees, just to move the equipment there. And when you're dealing with a low value product, that means that there needs to be some volume there. I can't justify bringing in a cut the length processor and a forwarder building some sort of a landing to get trucks in and off a road to go cut four or five loads. There isn't enough profit in that to even justify moving it in. So at that point, we're either looking at it's too small. We've got to figure out a way to do something else, or it's actually just a, it's a contract job. You're going to pay me to come in and, and knock it down, you know, a small, really small project. I'll knock it down with a chainsaw and it'll take less time than, than hauling in the equipment. And part of it is developing that plan, working with that landowner, showing them the big picture. Oftentimes I'll, you know, pull out Onyx. We have access now to satellite imagery in our pocket and say, look, this is your hundred acre block of timber and it's a big piece of ground and it's awesome. And I'm, I'm here to try to help you. But if we look at this on the landscape, it's been cut before your neighbors was cut five years ago, but we look at this satellite image. It's sort of the, as uh, Ben Jones from RGS, I, I'm pretty sure is who, who had this saying it's, it's the sea of sameness, right? Like you sit on one Ridge and you look at the other and it all sort of looks the same. And you might have some little pockets of diversity, but it's not, any sort of landscape level change. So if we're really committed to, to creating some different habitat types and stepping away, uh, not to offend anyone stepping outside of the deer world, deer are pretty adaptable. Some of our songbird species, I know you had Todd on, you know, rough grouse, they're, they're not as adaptable. And if we're working to, to benefit those species and do projects at scale that benefit those, we're creating deer habitat too. Um, so it, it's definitely a certain landowner that's going to be, be able to stomach that, see the big picture, understand, Hey, we're, we are planning 20, 25, 30 years into the future. This is absolutely like, this is the first step. This is not a one and done. And sort of, we did a timber, we cut some trees and, and all is good and forget about it for the next 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Greg, you brought, you brought up a point here. So, you know, initially when I had this conversation just a second ago, I'm bringing up, these forests that have been untouched and what you're just saying to me, which I see a lot in the landscapes is these forests have been touched in abundance in some cases and then mis misguided or mismanaged otherwise. So you're walking into these projects where, you know, again, it's location specific, 
but you're walking into these projects where you're trying to develop a healthy forest where there has been timber consumed or utilized for resources or other purposes. What are the steps? What are the decision-making philosophies that you may have in the healthy forest guidance? Meaning, you know, what specifically in the order of operations, thinking through this and maybe thinking about a job specifically, maybe break it down to a five acre scale, something you just worked on where you're improving the forest for, you know, let's say long-term timber value and you're removing the lower quality stuff out of there. So the resident trees or residual trees, you know, grow at a better, you know, better lengths or better quality, et cetera. So maybe you could dialogue that a little bit for, for the listenership. Sure. So trying to think of, I, I would say that, that my approach is probably similar to, to everyone else you've had on. I mean, I'm first things first, we're always looking at, at what's on the ground already. And the unfortunate reality again, is that if there's an invasive species problem, I'm trying to convince a landowner to deal with that right out of the gate because we don't want to put more daylight on problematic species. It's easier to control those when it's that more open woods. It might be an invasive. It might be competing vegetation, which is something else I know you've talked about. Um, even if it is a relatively un, untouched forest, we can't undo, especially in northern Pennsylvania, I don't want to get into the politics of deer herd management, but we've ha- we have those lasting legacy effects. It may be a decent stand of timber with a fern monoculture in the understory. Well, we can't steer that into a more positive direction until we we deal with that first. And then I'm looking at if there's no invasives, you know, do we have regeneration? Oftentimes we don't. So the, the next step is sort of, okay, what, what is it going to take? Do we have, do we have a crop of timber that is worth managing for? We've got some of those higher quality stems. Maybe we've got some that are, that are big enough to harvest, but they have potential to go a little bit further. Maybe we've got some stuff in that medium saw timber class that is definitely worth saving and we can give it a little bit of a boost if we get proactive and thin that. And then if there's other areas that are dominated by low grade and the landowner is able to stomach it, there's absolutely nothing wrong with, Hey, this is three acres of junk. It doesn't really make sense to grow this any further. This is going to be a big patch cut and that's totally okay. Um, thinking about a project I just did, that was, that was sort of the steps. It was, uh, help the landowner get some cost share money to deal with competing vegetation. In that case, there was invasives and, and beach. And on parts of that property, the stocking level, there was enough oak that to remove the, the lower quality maple, there was a, a small amount of oak mortality from gypsy moth and a late frost in consecutive years. But it's still, if you were to walk out there with a prism and do your inventory, it's, it's in the shelterwood guidelines. There were other areas that 30 years ago were heavy to my suspicion, looking at the stumps and the few bigger chunks of top that were left. Um, the cherry had been picked out of it at the height of the cherry era. Fortunately for that landowner, there was a lot of pole sized cherry in that four to six inch diameter class. With the machine, I can sort of wiggle the head in between and grab those maple and black birch and other, you know, lower value species and pick them out of those cherry trees and and turn that into pulpwood. Those aren't cherry trees. By the time they reach maturity, I'm probably not going to be in the business. The landowner who recently retired, I doubt he's going to see them grow to maturity, but that is his next crop of timber. Um, There's sort of a detachment. I don't want to say detachment. That might not be the right word, but, um, Species, species that we want to promote on the landscape in, in that younger size class and, and even the sapling stage, if we can, if we can get them established, have more value in the long term than these sort of stagnant stands of low grade, lesser quality wood. Um, but again, you know, that, that gets into the human, the human aspect of, can you, can you stomach what might be removing 50 to 60% of your trees because it doesn't make sense to manage for them. 
the simple way to look at it is, you know, if you, if you went out into your garden and half of your plants are things that you planted, but you didn't bother to weed all summer. And by August, the other 50% is crabgrass and tree saplings and dandelions. Like, you know, in order to make it look like a garden again, you've got to get rid of all that. But it, there, there is some shock factor there when you do that. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a, that's a good thing to think about because a lot of times one of the analogies I use with clients is a healthy force is like a healthy human. And what you ingest and what you eat, it may take a while for you to get there. I remember when I shifted to eating, you know, <laughs> a lot of preservatives and, and just poor quality food, eating better food. And I, I noticed my body took about six to eight months to respond positively to that. And it's almost like a shock to the system. And that's the thing. Like one of the other ph- philosophies that we, we've talked about in this podcast is providing synthetic fertilizer and I look at that as an energy resource, um, it's artificial. And artificial benefits make artificial plants, or artificial energy makes artificial plants. It's kind of a, a similar analogy here where maybe ripping the Band-Aid off and looking at the quality. And some in some cases, and I've done this on my own property, I've cut trees, I've looked at growth rings, you know, I've, I've looked at the interior of the tree just to see what disease or mineral content or just damage, right? And you could have these old forests and they're beautiful and the trees look relatively healthy and you, you cut the tree open and there's heart rot, you know, 10 foot up. And, you know, you, you kind of run into these issues where you almost don't know what you don't know sometimes. So you got to do a little forensic investigation, like you talked earlier, looking at the landscape, and then actually some some cutting in some instances. So... I guess I wonder from your perspective, there's a landowner out there and they're like, okay, I, I want to start assessing quality and maybe pick a species because you, you know think what things look like or should look like. And, you know, how do you really look at quality? Like hemlock's a good example where it may, it may shake a little bit and, you know, certain species in certain areas tend to not be as valuable because of that shade quality and, and factor of form, et cetera. So like from a landowner's standpoint, like when they're looking at the forest and say, is this a healthy forest or not? What are the techniques or strategy they use to evaluate their forest stand necessarily to say, okay, I'm good. <laughs> you know, I know that's a pretty wide open question, but I think people ask that all the time. I want to create a healthy forest. What does that even mean nowadays? And and I think my, my example with human health might, might give people some perspective, but what's the reality of it in your mind? So in, in an ideal situation, you know, we, we look at every, every tree and you're looking honestly from, from stump to top and everything in between. Um, so we'll use the maple species, for example, which most everyone's probably familiar with them. Um, in most instances, I would say probably better than 90% of the time, heart size in maple is directly related to the overall crown health. So if you have a maple stand with well-spaced trees that look like they all have nice full crowns, odds are pretty good. They're going to open up. Should, you know, I, I would, I would wager my bets that they're going to open up fairly white inside. And anybody that's bought maple lumber, if you've seen maple cabinets, the market wants white lumber. If you start seeing those trees, like, okay, we've got a relatively untouched woods, knowing the history of our area, and I, I think you touched on this with Tim in a previous podcast, much of this area was a giant clear cut at the end of the 1800s, early 1900s. I mean, it, it was exploited very hard. Yep. So if you've got a stand of trees that started back then, the 20 inch tree and the 14 inch tree might be the same age, but if you were to stand back and look at that 14 inch tree, is his top actually in the canopy or is it 20 and 30 feet shorter? Well, you know, that one's not getting full sun when they're bobbing around in the wind. Is it really skinny in two directions because it's got way more competitive neighbors? That's a tree just because it's maple, And this is where we start getting in the, you know, contrary might have thought cutting out the two big trees on either side of that because they have value 
that 14 inch tree with the growth rings that you can't count that's been suppressed for a while is likely to be the one that's missing a small chunk of heart already and starting to rot. And because it's been suppressed for the last 30 years, it's not miraculously going to have a growth spurt. They're not, they're not humans. They're not the skinny guy that decides to go on a high protein diet and hit the gym twice a day. And two years later is added 50 pounds of muscle. That's not going to happen, right? <laughs> You're taking that mid store or, or suppress you know, intermediate tree, you know, at best. And you're trying to make it now the, the overstory tree. It, it's, that's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> so, so great. This is, this is, this is fantastic. I'm happy you're talking about this. So you're, what you're saying is I can't pump up that tree to eventually equate to a, a tree that maybe dominates that particular area. It's, it's been suppressed enough or maybe the gen- genetics of that tree are such where it, it wasn't designed necessarily to be of, of quality and stature of, of a tree of, of better size and uh, better stature on the landscape. And, and that, that would be, there's not much you can do at that point. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. I think people don't know that po- that topic. And I think that's, that's very interesting. You, you brought that up. All right. Let, let's t- let's take another species here. So you, you did maple, let, let just pick, pick another species. That's, that's a, a form of quality and just assessing it. I think it's kind of interesting. Cause I don't, I don't think people take the time to think about this stuff or maybe have experience. You know, the other to, to pick on another one. And again, this is, this is case by case, but in, in all species, crown health is going to be paramount. There's been a ton of research, obviously, especially in the, the Oak species. I'm sure most of the listeners have heard of, of Dr. Harper. Um, But again, if we had to make a decision of, okay, I've got a, I've got this nice white oak and it's growing next to a red oak or let's say it's growing next to a black oak, which is in the red oak family. Well, black oak. And again, this is regionally specific. You get down into Southern Pennsylvania, the black oak might actually open up better quality than the red oak in my area, North central Pennsylvania, just over the border into New York. Oftentimes what you see with black oak is it gets sort of, it, it gets like epicormic sprouts. Even when it's grown in a, a relatively tight woods, it's pin knotty. So it's going to be lower quality. Yeah. And again, you know, so a good forester is making, okay, I, I want to keep a fairly even mix of red oak family and white oak family on the landscape. But if you have to pick, okay, this is a pretty nice white oak, a decent sized black oak, but I can see some dead limbs at 10, 12 feet off the ground, or I've got a tree it looks fairly healthy, but it's got a really low crotch. I want to open up some sunlight. That tree that's only got a 10-foot butt log before it wise, and each of those leaders is a third of the diameter of the stem, the likelihood of getting more volume out of that long term, you're never going to overcome that form. It's always going to be a low crotch tree. We see similar similar characteristics in in cherry where you might have this I mean, I've seen them on state sales. I'm sure Kenny has seen millions of them in their part of the world. You can have a 30-inch tree, and it barely makes an 8-foot log before it goes into this big turkey-foot-looking top. And there's logs in all of those. But, again, that that 2- and 3-liter form, you're not going to overcome that. So if it's the only tree there, maybe we are still leaving it because we need the seed source. If we've got – We've already done some sort of a thinning or it's competing with some, some straighter trees that have the ability. We think they're going to pack on more value at a higher grade class of log than, than that cactus looking thing is going to go. Um, so yeah, that's crown crown health is, is a big one. Um, certainly all the stuff you can see it, you know, see standing at the ground, a big, a big seam or twisted looking grain going up a butt, um, uh, you know, a big knot or a cat face. I'm sure guys have seen them might, if you've never cut those kind these kind of soft maples down, if you see what looks like a big knot and it sort of really callousy and looks like it might be a cavity, but maybe it's not. Oftentimes that tree's got massive amounts of heart rot to the point that it might be a big piece of pulpwood if it's bad enough when you cut it down. So, um, those those sorts of things start to start to stand out the more you the more you look and become become aware of them. 
Let's uh, let's get a little more specific, and I appreciate those examples. Sir. Those are fantastic. When we talk about, I'm going to go back to the low grade thing, and and there's a calculation for you, right? There's got to be a certain amount of volume that you're looking at in a job, and I know a lot of it has to do with you know the location of the job, location of landing site, accessibility in the areas. Those are all factors in your ability to haul things, you know, in and out. But when it comes to volume. And let's say there's no offsets per se, meaning there's no other timber sources in there that are of significant value. And these trees have a hard time paying their way out of the woods, you know, the, the lower grade. What, what's your typical volume you look at from a job standpoint, uh, you know, f- from a, a board foot standpoint that, that makes, makes you interested uh, per se to, to actually do a job like that, whether it's a cost share helping you out, you know, in that equation with the landowner and, and payment, et cetera, what, what kind of size and scale are we looking at in, in that capacity? So I, ideally, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I understand we, we don't live in an, we don't live in an ideal world, right? Um, if I'm close enough to a mill to make it work and hopefully the job is in between my house and the mill that the wood is going to go to. So neither is too far. I'm still looking for somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 tons of material. And if that's stocked on, you know, the fewer, the fewer acres that that is stocked on the better. Um, That's as much part of the logistics as, as anything Um, to have, 500 tons of materials stretched out over 250 acres of, of wood lot doesn't, doesn't really work. It, it, you're covering a whole lot of ground and, and still kind of spinning your wheels. Um, take that 500 tons and put it into some patch cuts and some shelter woods and some areas that are going down the seed tree. And, you know, and we're looking at 20, 30 tons of, you know, it, it's definitely volume per acre is, is coming off the site. Um, you know, then, then it starts to work, but if there's, yeah, uh, it, it's case by case, um, you know, and that fluctuates. I mean, if I'm 10 miles from the mill and the trucking is, is pretty deep and we're already in the neighborhood, then, you know, all that calculation kind of goes out the window. If I can scoot the equipment there and by the cover of darkness, listen, (laughs) listen. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah no no this is this is great and i think people don't understand the volume you're just talking about when you say 500 tons maybe could you give a little more description on what that might mean i mean i think that's, oh, that's a, quite a bit <laughs> yeah yeah i mean so if you've seen a what i'll call a straight triaxle log truck so just a, a regular picker truck they haul on average somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 tons. So we're looking for, you know, at least 20, 25 loads. And if it's 50 or a hundred, that's even better. Um, you know, and, and the reason for that, like I said, just the, the, the cost even to, even to move in, I, I'm a one man, one man show. I do not own a truck and trailer, which even the bigger companies that do own them, they're still paying for registration. They're burning $4 and 50 cent diesel fuel. They're maintaining a hundred plus thousand dollar truck and a hundred thousand dollar detachable low bed trailer and all that. It's 125 to $150 an hour, depending on which company I use to move my equipment. Even if I'm close to home, by the time they leave their shop, they get to the landing. We roll that piece of equipment on. We go through the whole procedure of cleaning it off the best we can even if I've washed it, it's almost impossible to not have to track it through a mud puddle. It seems like these days, uh, go through the process of, you know, chains on all the corners and chains over the head and the flags for the oversized load down the road. We go, it's a minimum three hours and I've got to do that for two machines. So, you know, 400 bucks a shot. So it's $800 just to get there to sell one of the lowest valued wood products on the market. So if there's, you know, So do the math. I mean, if there's 500 tons, say there's 500 tons on a job and it was, say it was a thousand dollars to get there, $2 a ton off the top went just to get my equipment there. So that's, you know, and, and $2 a ton in low value wood that like, that's the profit margin. (laughs) 
Yeah, and and again, this is scaled volume. This is the the only way to actually achieve this is to to hit those those kind of loads at the rate we had just mentioned in order to make this this a profitable business. And and the reality of it is there's there's so much effort that goes into the cutting and managing that. Now, I, I got a simple question for you. When you're okay. doing, you know, these projects per se, and and again, you're working with the landowner, you're marking everything out because you're you're doing everything really, and and you're 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 tied in with with certain mills that that you work with, and do you feel like the value you have a big value stream, and I think a lot of people don't have the same kind of mindset, right? You're managing the the quality. Uh, there's the sustainability, the restoration things that we've already spoken about. And then you're picking and choosing, you know, through that process. And and in that, we, we started doing species selection and biodiversity, right? We kind of got to that point. And then there's the economics of this. What drives you to this point to kind of maintain the status? Because I'm not going to call you the low-grade man, because I, I don't I don't think that's a that's a good title to have necessarily. But but you're doing it for for good measure and purpose, right? You see the value in making these changes, and then the net result is something. And the net result isn't just financial. You're seeing habitat gains. And I kind of want to know, like, from a human side of things, looking at these changes, like, how do you feel about everything you, you're doing on the landscape to benefit? Uh, and, and we talked about eradicating, you know, non-native plants that are noxious, et cetera. What do you feel like? your goals and objectives are from a business standpoint. And I think this kind of defines you as an individual. So I want you to talk a little bit about that topic. Um, I guess the best way to describe it is that in, in the simplest of terms is I want to be known for doing good forestry, <laughs> yep. you know, and I, I believe it's a Leopold quote and I'm, I'm going to, butcher it because I don't know it off the top of my head, but you know, like something along the lines of like, you know, with an environmental education, you, you start to see a, a world of flaws, right? And not saying that, that I'm perfect, but I, I do not have the heart and the stomach to go and just high grade a woodlot. I would rather, you know, and this might be a controversial state, but I would rather see a clear cut than a high grade because at least in a clear cut, that is even age management. It mimics a large scale natural disaster. You give everything the opportunity to start again at one shot. That is a better option. Mother nature will respond in a way um, more so than we would see to go and cherry pick out the value and leave behind a, a bunch of low grade material. That that's my conscience. It's, it's not the most profitable way to run a logging business by any stretch of the, the imagination. Um, you're, w- when we're talking low grade, you're, you're doing twice as much work for loads of material that pay half as much as saw logs. So everything about the business says this is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 you're not, not, not at all. I mean, I, I think there's, you just brought up a couple of good points, right? You talked about clear cuts. Well, you could do clear cuts with reserves, right? That that's a that's a good option. I've done that on yep. properties that I've worked on. Uh, we just talked about deferred rotation based upon economic value, meaning you could cut some of the higher quality and leave some of the the also the the other trees that are of equal or equivalent of quality. And so you're balancing. This is a balancing act, right? And you're you're, you're picking different. I, I just say regeneration methods or techniques in the forest stands for different purposes based on its current condition and status. And Mm -hmm. to your point, taking the low grade out is probably the most beneficial thing you can do, even if it costs you money. And this is the point I was, I was trying to uh, get you to here is I would pay, right. To have somebody like you come in to manage my forest stand in, in your method, right. And with your technique and your equipment, at the right time and remove the the non-preferred species based on my goals. And if I'm trying to focus on quality and health, you know, human health, forest health, in that equation, a person like you is extremely valuable. 
even if it costs you money. And I think what people get lost at is your investment in an equation like this, long-term, even if you don't see it, and this could be a legacy property that you own, but even short-term, it takes things really quick to cycle in a young forest. And managing those young forests uh, in, in the patchwork that you prefer and, and working with somebody like yourself to uh, d demonstrate that balancing equation of, you know, just multiple techniques throughout the property. And this, this allows, I, I guess, in my opinion, a, a different perspective than somebody just going in and saying, I want money. I want money out of this equation. I don't see why we don't invest in our properties for the long term. And I have a hard time, um, swallowing that pill and i think that's why i thought um this is a good conversation with you because you're you're that type of you know you're that's what your business does and a lot yeah. of people are not in the business for the right reasons and so that's why we connected and and i just right. want to bring that up so all right uh, we're getting kind of into this and and i actually <laughs> I, I actually want to do like a whole nother podcast now that i've thought about this is i want you to get in and, and start giving suggestions on techniques and methodologies to cut in 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 different in different in different settings and why you select this methodology versus that methodology i think that'd be a great conversation for us to have right so, so let's talk about the human factors piece of this so we can, we can head on it quickly why are we in the situation we're in why are we not in an ideal situation what's happened to us and what's the net result of that currently that you're seeing on the landscape you know from a quality standpoint etc everything we just spoke about so, um, yeah, so this is, uh, bear with me here real quick. I'll, uh, this, this isn't Greg Bernson's opinion. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll read something here. There's, there's a couple different talking points. Um, one of them comes from a research paper that was done by, a someone it's buried in a PSU extension document okay. and it was actually about the feasibility of biomass and whatever. But there's a short sentence here that says, in fact, about 57% of the wood in Pennsylvania's forest is considered low use wood. And 73% of that material is on private land. Wow. So, so, you know, so there's, there's point number one. And along that same lines from a forest service uh, forest inventory and analysis paper stocking levels on private timberland can continue to shift toward the lower stocking classes, widening disparities between stocking levels for all live trees versus growing stock trees may indicate a need for more programs to assist landowners with forest management. Regeneration remains a challenge, you know, and there's a, there's a number of points. That same document, if you read through the fine print, it's 60 something pages. You got to really like silviculture or you need something to put you to sleep at night. Shows <laughs> um, a shift in the private land status and they compare all live trees versus growing stock. When they say growing stock, they're referring to species that have commercial potential. And they could be the species that we want to grow, like. Five, five foot tall white oak in an overstory removal on a well-managed site is still growing stock. The crooked, ugly species that we've been talking about all night do not constitute growing stock. The, the percentage of private land that is dominated and in a state of what I heard a professor call forest purgatory, where we don't have enough sunlight getting on the ground to regenerate. We've got these legacy effects. We've got this competing vegetation, but we don't really have any value to work with. We don't have much of a seed source left. That makes up about 23%. That, that was back in 2014. The number continues to go up. I don't have a hard number. In 2014, that was 23% of private forest land in Pennsylvania. So... When private landowners control 12 million acres of forest land, you do the math. That's a whole lot of ground that's not not doing a whole lot of good. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And I guess this is a call out to the people thinking about their ground specifically and and, and where it stands currently. And and taking the time to have somebody, you know, like like Greg or, or you know, your local forester doing kind of that assessment for you to give you kind of better knowledge and information on you know, what, what improvements you can make. And, 
even Greg, Rick, I feel like your service is something special, right? And you're tied into the right markets. And, you know, again, volume's critical to the equation, but you're looking more so at, at the health and sustainability of, of some of these stands. And, and again, thinking about genetic varieties and the biodiversity and really improving the overall health of the landscape in that I want to, I want you to kind of end with something and I want you to talk about the response you see from deer and the, the jobs that you're doing. Cause I, this is obviously a deer focused podcast, but the, the habitat quality on a, a landscape scale is really kind of important, you know, and when you're altering it, like you've talked about, there's going to be certain responses that you're going to see from a landowner's standpoint. And I just, I guess you, I want you to hit on that at the end and, and just give people some, come up some idea of just, just what the benefits are. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, in, in most situations we're going from that, that woodlot. And again, you know, I know I've touched on this a couple of times, but you know, we have that, we still have that legacy effect, even, even in the areas where we've seen some herd reductions and maybe the numbers are a bit more in check we still have those forests that are sort of, you know, if there is an understory at all, it's non-preferred browse species. Um, and then you've got almost always, you've got close canopy above it. So there's lack of, of potential to regenerate. And as soon as you start making changes, it, it's both a blessing and a curse. And this gets into the human, not to go backwards, but to get into the human dynamic, then I won't dwell on this too long, but, the the listeners of this podcast are way ahead because you're already like, if you're listening to these podcasts, you're on the habitat pages on social media, you're already keyed in. You're trying to educate yourself. You're not the average landowner. I mean, for as big as the, you know, it's shoulder to shoulder at the outdoor show in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania this weekend, it seems like the hunting world is huge. But when you figure there's over half a million private forest landowners in the state of Pennsylvania, trim that down to the 50,000, you know, it's less than 10% that are even hunters anymore, let alone that are fortunate enough to own their own ground and start making these decisions. So the reason I say it's almost a, a catch 22, we start making really good habitat, but then you also need a landowner that understands, Hey, we're, we're doing really cool work, but number one, this isn't, this isn't a one and done. Like we don't have to pay attention. From here on out, if we've been able to do this in a way to generate revenue, be prepared to put on a backpack. You're going to have to go and, like, there's probably some invasives in that seed bank we're going to have to deal with. If the browse pressure is too high, you've got to learn to really like summer sausage. Um, you know, and it's it's not to say we can do the best laid plan in the world, but that's not to say that we might not have to start making additional investments in diversifying things. If you, you know, take, for example, thermal cover, if you don't have it, we've got to put it on the landscape. If, if we want these varying age classes, I'm talking about volume and getting it out of the woods. Well, if we do 40 or 50 acres of a heavy handed approach and you want to maintain age diversity, well, at year, so say we're, say we're trying to set up that ideal property that Todd talked about in the grouse podcast, we're going to let all of this grow to five to 15 years high stem counts going to be awesome for grouse. At some point we want to cut this back. Well, maybe we're leaving some of it 15, you know, 15 years and above another section, couple sections. We're going to take a few acres. We're going to go back in. We're knocking it all down again. It, it's not passive. It, it's not, um, they call it management for a reason. Like we're, we're setting the stage. This is the first step. We're trying to deal with what we have today the cards we've been dealt by past practices, good or bad, and we're sort of planning a future and to be able to look and I still struggle with it. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can wrap my mind around it, but it's still hard. I shouldn't say hard, but you know, you, you do this work and then, you know, I think about a job where I finished it in the spring of the year, that entire summer was super wet. We didn't get the response that we wanted just because the conditions were terrible next summer was the total opposite. It was bone dry. We had high fire danger in June in Pennsylvania. It doesn't make any sense. Right. And so it's like, finally, five years in, we've got, 
Rubis that's, you know, getting up chest high. The response in that from the variety of songbirds, the pollinators, the deer tracks through it, all the little edges. We left pockets of trees intact, cut other areas hard. All those fringes have trails around them, tons of browse. But again, it's it's not set in stone. If we want to keep that on the landscape, at some point in the future, we're going to have to make an entry again. It might not be commercial, but if we're knocking that back, I cross my fingers, wishful thinking, maybe, um, you know, Pennsylvania is making some moves as far as fire goes. You you brought that up. In an ideal world, in a few years, maybe we're, we're able to use that tool in the toolbox to to keep some of those areas, you know, knock that succession back if we want that on the landscape. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is, this is all part of the long-term planning strategies that, that the other foresters you've had on have talked about too. So it's, it's big picture realize that, you know, we're the work we're doing in our lifetimes is really, really short in the scheme of time, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So I, I want to add in there and, we're going to have you back on. We're going to talk about a few other things, I think, coming up. I think it was good talking about what the status of the forest is. And and even these last points here, really, a lot of it has to do with, you know, kind of managing that deer herd so you can get the response that you need. I think that's critical in the equation. And you ending here with the maintenance aspect of it and thinking, you know, what does it look like in three to five to 10 to 15 years, depending on the weather conditions, again, tools and techniques, you know, bringing up fire there's options for you playing that into the equation of management, you know, is, is really important. So having a plan and being able to execute and then being nimble in the sense that, you know, things climatically change, you know, the four stands today, which again, we're seeing a shift. We talked about some of the shade intolerance and we don't have as many fire loving species on the landscape that could shift again with the climate, right? Climate shift could be another factor in this equation, uh, which also could bring a whole host of other issues to the landscape, particularly, you know, uh, fire issues, so to speak, because of the fuel loads. So, you know, these long-term droughts that we're seeing in certain areas, you know, be prepared to deal with not only disease, uh, and, and you're seeing those in certain areas up here in the Hudson and where they're starting to see HD and in large scale, uh, but mm-hmm. they're, you're going to start seeing fire issues in, in, the, in the east. And I, I mark my words on that topic because I've been in enough stands to know what eventually could happen. And, you know, hopefully that doesn't happen, but states like Pennsylvania and New York, and I don't, sorry, you know, there's people that listen to us all their country, but, you know, be in tune with using these tools and techniques for the safety and benefit of your forestland settings, period, 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 period. And, and using those tools to, to minimize fuel loads and to think a little bit more about the health and status of your forest stands you know, burning, you know, different times of the year, seeing what the response is, doing test case. You know, this is how we managed and uh, treated our force. You know, the natives had done that years and years ago. That was a practice that they employed. We need to start thinking more holistically. We've lost some of the cultural practices uh, that folks have done in years past because of, of how we view the world. And, you know, I guess European settlement changed a lot. And, uh, you know, I think we need to start thinking smarter and being smarter about improvements and things that we're doing on the landscape. And the folks in the Midwest, I can't stress this enough, and you'll hear some podcasts I'm going to do this summer of how to minimize drought. There's absolutely ways to minimize drought. You all out there in the Midwest that struggle with that every single year, I'm going to give you some formulas, some tactics to get you to the next level. There's no way, no way you should be dealing with, with drought situations. There, there's enough rain on your landscapes you know, your 35 inch plus rain, it may be in high intensity, you know, situations, but you should be able to uh, drop proof your properties. And, and we'll talk more about that this summer when you guys are starting to experience drought, et cetera. And I'll give you some, some philosophies around that. Sorry, Greg, I just went off topic. I don't know why I'm even yabbing on, but um, <laughs> this is a great podcast. We'll have you back on. We're going to talk about some more specific things. I think you know, some of the jobs that you're working on and strategy for an individual landowner and, uh, you know, what, what they can do, right? Making some real hard decisions on the properties that they're working on. And maybe I'll have some examples for you off the next few clients that I go to and, and kind of pick your brain. All right, cool. Yeah. 
Not a problem. Okay. If anybody wants to get a hold of you, what would be the best way to do that? I'm on uh, Burns and Timber is the Facebook page and the Instagram if you're on the socials. Otherwise, there is a – it needs an update. I'm, I'm not a computer guy by any means, but Burns and Timber Management, there is, a, there is a website and a contact form that does come back to the email. Or on the socials, you'll see my cell phone. Shoot me – give me a call. Shoot me a text. Text message probably here. I mean, if you're local and you've got questions, text, text works just because – Oftentimes I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's understandable. And if you need to get, if you need to get a hold of me to get a hold of Greg, please do that. I'll forward your information to him, and and that'll just you know help folks in in those particular areas. I mean, I work in Pennsylvania. I hope I get a chance to work with you, Greg, on a project sometime. And um, you know that that'd be fun for me. And I uh, certainly appreciate your your knowledge and and insight and just experience. And then I think uh, next go around, we'll, we'll have some real good stuff to talk about. So appreciate your time and uh, we'll talk soon. Yeah. Later, man. All right, brother. Talk to you. See ya. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.